Aren't all religions the same? Did God really create everything? Do people actually hear from God? Are there really angels and demons? Okay, now that's just unbelievable. In our next series, we're going beyond the Google search and facing the tough questions. It's time to take on the skeptic and eliminate the doubt. From inconceivable to unimaginable, we're talking about the Bible's most unbelievable truths. Every second of this series will be worth your while. Believe it or not. I am pretty excited about this brand new series. These are the kinds of things that people are Googling, looking for an answer to. So this is your chance, that person that's in your life, in your sphere of influence, that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. This is your opportunity to invite them to come to church with you, to tune in, to listen to this content. There is evidence that backs up our faith, believe it or not. And of course, today, this is the last week of the 100% series, and today we're going to have the opportunity to lay down our M1 Capital Campaign cards. If you're new to our church, you don't know what we're doing, we're trying to do 50 projects over the course of 24 different countries on three different continents. Every dime we raise for the M1 Capital Campaign, above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings, every dollar goes to these initiatives. And so far, we've looked at two of the different continents where we're going to be doing different things. Let me show Show you continent number three. Take a look at this. In case you haven't heard yet, we are taking on our biggest challenge of generosity and faith this year with an M1 capital campaign. Over this year, we will be planting churches and providing facilities for 50 plus projects across 24 countries. We have divided those projects into three separate regions of the world, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. If you were here the past two weeks, then you've gotten to see a behind-the-scenes look at our projects throughout Latin America and Africa. Today, we get to take a sneak peek at just a few of our projects in Asia. Check this out. The area where the Church Love of Christ is located is called the Amur Settlement. Today, there are new adults and children in the church because of our ministry, but the potential is far greater. There are many dysfunctional families, alcoholism and drug addiction are rampant. At the same time, the gospel presence here is very small. With the new building, we would be able to reach many more people for Christ. We would be honored for your partnership in completing the construction of the church building and the playground. It will provide space for one child to learn God's word in Sunday school. And this will allow us to work more effectively in spreading the gospel. Hi, this is Mark Buxton, missionary in the Philippines. I'm standing here with my friend Lloyd. Lloyd is the youth director in our church here in Marikina City. And we're standing here on the property that our church is praying for to build a new sports center and church meeting facility. We're planning to construct a multi-purpose sports facility here on this property, as well as a meeting place for our church, Midpoint Baptist Fellowship. So we're excited about having our own facility. It will be a launching pad that will allow us to reach the remainder of this city of 500,000 people. We have a vision to plant other churches and to have this church be a hub for sending out pastors and missionaries around the world. And we have even more projects throughout Asia. Here are two projects we're working on in Cambodia. 
We're helping them build two churches, one for just $28,000 and the other for $26,000. Here, you can see the people meeting outside. We are excited to get to play a part in providing these people with a space to worship and grow closer to God. In India, the people of this community need a church auditorium, and we can help them build that for just $15,000. And in another community in India, we can build a church for only $15,000 to help these people be able to meet weekly and reach more people than ever before. And we have even more projects in the Philippines and Russia. Visit m1.sagebrush.church today to find out more about all of our projects throughout Asia, Latin America, and Africa. We are so excited to see what God has in store for the rest of the year. This incredible opportunity to share His light across the world to places that have never been reached before is a once-in-a-lifetime chance. Are you ready to be a part of this life-changing story still being written? Visit our website or check out our free Sagebrush app to donate today. So we're going places where we've never gone before to help people we've never helped before. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting. And so you have this, this card in your hand. And at the end of the service, we're going to have the opportunity to come down and lay these cards on the altar as a promise to God that this is the things that we want to do. And, and some people said, how do you fill out the card? Well, where you see the dollar sign, you would put, this is how much I'm going to give per week. Or, or you could say, this is how much I'm going to give per month. Or you could do a total and write down the total amount and say, this is what I'm going to give above and beyond my normal tithes and offerings over the course of a year. And that will help us do the planning that we need to to start the projects that we need to start. And already the generosity has come through. And we've already sent the monies overseas. And already, friends, because of your faithfulness, we are already starting many, many projects and many more to come. And what's going to be great about this, over the course of this year, you're going to see it. You're going to see it on video. You're going to see it on the web page. You're going to see it. Uh, you're going to get the chance when this uh, virus is over and you know, we can finally travel freely without having to get tested any longer. You're going to get to go to these places and see how you were the hands and feet of Jesus and how you made a difference in these different communities. So I know that you'll be faithful. At the end of our service, if you're at home and you're watching me, you're watching me on the stream or TV, you can be a part also. You can go to the Sagebrush website. You can go to the Sagebrush app. Uh, if you just follow along, you can find a place where you can also make a pledge right where you are at. So we would encourage you uh, to take the time to do that because it's going to take all of us, not just those of us who are showing up in a physical manner, but all over the country, all over the world where you tune in, where you call Sagebrush your church home. This is your opportunity to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So we pray that you'll take advantage of this. And as you make sure you bookmark the m1.sagebrush.church website because that's going to be updated all the time with new pictures. And when projects are funded and completed, we're going to give you all the latest information on there as well. So make sure you take advantage of that. All right, let's get into the last week of the study that we've been doing in the book of Malachi. When I was in middle school, I had three best friends. And these three best friends and me, we, we did everything together. We had each other's backs. We looked out for each other. In, in middle school, we kind of noticed, because we had older brothers and sisters, that when kids got into high school, that they got themselves into some trouble, especially when it came to drugs and alcohol. We saw a lot of kids kind of messing their life up. As a matter of fact, I had a front row seat to watching my sister become a drug addict. And so I gathered my friends together and I said, listen, I, I don't want to be like those people when we get to high school. And so we need to make a pact that we'll be strong together. 
And so in true middle school fashion, we pricked our fingers and poured out our blood and we signed on the line, you know, that we weren't going to have anything to do with drugs and alcohol when we got into high school. Now, uh, you know this already. There's a big difference between middle school and high school, isn't there? I mean, middle schoolers are fearless. They don't shower they don't use deodorant. You understand what I'm saying? That's fearless right there. They don't brush their teeth before they go to bed unless mom or dad remind them. Right? And, and I, what I've learned about middle school kids is they don't care what anybody else thinks of them. They'll share Jesus with anybody. They'll invite anybody to come to church. In all those years I did student ministry, my middle school kids were the most fearless kids. We would have huge ministries to middle school kids because they would run in the classroom, invite every single kid to come and be a part of the student ministry. Now, once you get to high school, not so much. Not so much. In, in high school, we become consumed with what everybody thinks of us and, and our appearance, right? So in high school, we start, start showering frequently, which is a good thing. And you don't have to remind a high schooler to wear deodorant anymore. They kind of caught on that they, you don't need to put the deodorant on. That's good. And you don't have a problem with them brushing their teeth. They're becoming adults. But your problem is, is they are becoming like everybody else around them. And so what everybody else is doing, because they want to fit in, because they want to be accepted, we all have this overwhelming need to be accepted. They will end up compromising. And they will end up doing some very foolish things. Peer pressure is a very real deal. And it really does prey on the insecurities that a person is feeling. So here we go. We, we get into high school, and we want to fit in. We want to be in the popular crowd. We want, we want people to know us. We want people to think good things of us. And there's parties that are going on all the time. And we're being invited to these parties. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. This is not good right here because we're going to go to these parties. There's going to be a lot of pressure to drink. And so I got my friends here. I said, don't forget about our pack, man. Don't forget what we said we're going to do. And for a while, we did really well. We were the kids who were known as bringing our own six-pack to the party. And I'm not talking about a six-pack of beer. I'm talking about a six-pack of Coca-Cola. Sometimes it might be root beer. Sometimes it might be Sprite. But we bring our own drinks to the party. And we were strong. We looked out for each other. And then one weekend, I had something else going on with my parents that I needed to do something. And came to school on Monday. And the rumors around were my three friends had gone to this party and they'd gotten absolutely wasted. And I was devastated. And I went over to those guys and I said, "What? what is that true? Is, is, are the rumors true? Is, is, did you do that? And they said, what's the big deal? They said, everybody is doing it, Todd. And you ought to join alongside with us too. Now, I already had a front row seat to my sister's drug abuse. When I was a sophomore in high school, my brother was a senior. He would come home on the weekends and, and he was drunk as a skunk. And he would throw up in that toilet downstairs over and over. And I thought, this is your idea of a good time? I didn't want any part of it. I said, no, guys, I, I don't want to go. I don't want to be a part of that. And, and they basically kicked me to the curb. And that, and that was it. So I spent the rest of my Friday and Saturday nights for that, that year uh, home alone with my, with my mom and my dad. That's where the real party was, to be honest with you. The party was really with mom and dad playing Uno and Skip Boo. That's what it was. It was right there with them. At least that's what I told myself as I cried on my pillow at night. This was a very lonely time for me. And, and there were moments when I was laying in bed and thinking about all the fun, because it always looks like it's so much fun, doesn't it? All the fun that everybody else was having. Now I'm laying in bed watching that stupid ceiling fan go round and round and round. And this is what came to my mind. Is this worth it? 
I mean, I just was a brand new Christian. I knew that this isn't something that Jesus would want me to go out and get drunk and party and I knew all those kinds. Of, is this worth it? And at some point in time in your Christian life, you're going to be asking that question. Is it really worth following Jesus? Because there's very few people that really do, right? And, and you kind of look around and you say, well, they're all doing pretty good. Maybe, it, maybe it's not really worth it in the end. Is it really worth serving the Lord? I mean, finding a ministry and being the hands and feet of Jesus, is it worth it? Is it worth getting into a small group and having iron, sharpened iron, so I can be everything that God wants me to be? I mean, a lot of people aren't accountable. They seem to be doing just fine. I mean, is this M1 campaign really worth it? Because that means I've got to sacrifice, I've got to surrender some things, I've got to change my lifestyle a bit to help people that I'm never even going to meet on this side of the earth. You know, is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Well, we get to Malachi chapter 3, and guess what? The people during Malachi's time are asking that exact same question. Remember, he comes on the scene, Malachi does, and says, listen, you're being offensive to God. You're not giving your best to the one who gave his best to you. You're bringing your, your lambs that are crippled and blind for sacrifices so you can be forgiven of your sin. And God's offended by that. And then he says, you know, you aren't taking your marriage vows seriously. You're divorcing people just for the silliest reasons at all. You're not doing the hard work in your marriage as well. And, and then he says that last week, he said, you're robbing God. And he said, how do I rob you? He says, in tithes and in offerings. And they're like, okay, okay. But if we bring our best sacrifice, if we really get committed in our marriage, if we start honoring God with the tithe, is it worth it? I mean, doing this stuff that God says that we should do, at the end of the day, is there any benefit from this? And I want you to see what they said, verse 14 to chapter 3. They said it's futile to serve God. What do did, what did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. You kind of get it, right? People are kind of looking around going, I don't get it. You know, people who are thumbing their nose, using God's name in vain, don't want anything to do with God. They, they seem to be doing quite well. And here we are trying to do our very best for him, trying to leverage our life for him. And we're just barely getting by. We're just struggling along the way. Is it worth it? Is it worth going all in for the one who went all in for you? Here's what's interesting. The people of Malachi's day weren't the first one who wondered about this. Go back a few hundred years and, and you, you find a, a king by the name of Solomon who wondered if really following God was worth it. Never mind the fact that when David, his dad, was on his deathbed, and you know King David, the one who defeated the giant Goliath. He, he wasn't a perfect king by any stretch of the imagination. We know he had many misgivings, many, many failings in his life. But man, one thing about David, according to God, was he was a man after God's heart. He really loved God. He wasn't perfect. He messed up really bad. But man, he loved God. He was passionate about his relationship with God. So he's on his deathbed. He brings his son Solomon in. He says, man, remember, remember God. Leverage your life for God. Give everything you are over to God. Oh, son, he's worth it. He's worth giving your very best to. And then David dies. And then Solomon has a choice to make, right? And I just don't think that Solomon chose to think that it, he, was, he was worth it. Because one of the things we realize about Solomon's life is he was kind of wishy-washy, you know? He wasn't wholehearted for God. He was just kind of half-hearted for God. 
He had one foot in and one foot out. He did the hokey pokey and he turned himself about. Because that's what it's all about, right? He was so afraid. Solomon, just like us, was so afraid that he was missing out. He thought, if I really follow God wholeheartedly, I'm going to miss out on all the fun and all the excitement. And so he went on a quest. He went on a quest for meaning. He went on a quest for purpose. In fact, we have an entire book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon thinks, I'm missing out. So he decides he's going to try everything under the sun to see if there's meaning apart from God. He tried, first off, education. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13 says, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God's laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon said, I'll just be real book smart, and I'll, and I'll study, and I'll study, and I'll study, and I'll study, and I'll learn, I'll learn, I'll learn, I'll learn, and that will bring meaning. I won't be missing out on anything that way. And at the end of the day, he says, it's, it's meaningless. Listen, I'm all for education. I think you should get all the education you can get. I think you should get all the degrees. If you want to get a degree, go get that degree. Nothing wrong with that. But education apart from God is futile. There, there was a, a, a guy who was out in the church parking lot one day. It wasn't our church, another church. And he was out in the parking lot, and he was picking up trash. And the pastor came out and, and saw him, and he introduced himself and the man said that his name was Joe. And he said, you know, Joe, we, we've got an opening here for someone to help us with maintenance and custodial duties. Would you be interested in that job? And Joe just lit up. He smiled real big. He said, I would love to do that job. Pastor said, well, that's great. Why don't you come on in and fill out this application, and, and we'll do an interview for you. Joe said, well, I can't do that. Pastor said, well, why can't you do it? And, and Joe said, well, I'm illiterate. I, I can't read, and I can't write. Well, the pastor thought about that for a second. He thought, well, that's not very good. For we have somebody working on our church staff that can't read or write. That's going to limit him quite a bit. So he decided not to offer Joe the job. Instead, he gave him a big thing of apples. Well, Joe was a little confused, but he said, okay. And so he took out, and he ate a couple apples because he was sad. He was sitting on the street corner. He thought, this is so many apples that the preacher gave me, and I don't want them to go to waste. I think I'll sell some of the apples. So he sat there on the street corner, he sold his apples until all the sack was gone, and he made a little bit of money. And with the money that he made, he went and bought himself some more apples. And over the course of the next few months, he had himself a pretty successful fruit stand. And then over the course of a couple of years, he was able, with the money he had gotten from the fruit stand, to actually buy a grocery store. So he's doing quite well. He's making tons and tons and tons of money. He's got so much money, he's got a million dollars in a paper sack. So he thinks, I can't be walking around with a million dollars. I need to put this money in the bank. So he goes down to the bank, and they get the banker out there, and he hands over the sack and says, I want to deposit this million dollars. And the banker is ecstatic. He says, that's wonderful. Just fill out these forms, and we'll deposit your money. And Joe said, well, I can't. I, I, I can't read. I can't write. And the banker said, you've you got to be kidding me right now. You can't read or write. Can you imagine where you would be if you were educated? Joe said, yeah, I'd be the janitor at the First Baptist Church. That's what I'd be. <laughs> Solomon found out that the most educated person on the face of the earth can't solve the problem of death. All your degrees and all your education can't solve that problem, can it? Education has its limits, doesn't it? You, you can teach a teenager, you can teach a 20-something sex education, but it won't stop them from having sex. They'll know what they're doing isn't right. They'll know that that's not the best, but that won't stop them from doing it. 
the Just Say No to Drugs campaign, my goodness, we, we've had so many campaigns that say, hey, stay away from alcohol, stay away from drugs. All the commercials we have about DUIs and all that stuff that's out there all the time. We see it all the time. Hadn't stopped anybody, has it? Sensitivity training hasn't stopped anybody from being a racist. If you're bound and determined to be prejudiced, I guess no matter of education is going to teach you anything different. Some thought, I'll try education. He said, no, it didn't work. Meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind. He said, I'll try alcohol and drugs. Look what he says here. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. He thought the party scene was where it was at. So he partied like it was 970 B.C. He partied, and he partied, and he partied, and he partied all the time, party all the time, party all the time. His parties would go for weeks, it would go for months. Here was his conclusion. Wine's a mocker. Beer's a brawler. Whoever's led astray by them is not wise. He said, well, I'll try sex. <laughs> he did. 700 wives. 300 concubines, 1,000 women living under the same roof. This is The Bachelor on steroids. You understand that right now? It's a, it's a messed up, wiggity-wack thing right there. And I'm pretty certain that he tried every sexual perversion he'd ever come up across and ever came up with in his head. Even that didn't satisfy him. He tried work, which says here, it says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Solomon was a workaholic. His own house took 13 years to build. And he had the best builders, the best materials to build that house. He also built a beautiful temple for the Lord. He built the walls around the city of Jerusalem. I mean, Solomon was a building machine. In fact, he built six different cities, and they were all majestic. They were all beautiful. He undertook all of those different projects. Look at what he writes here in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8. He said, I amassed silver and gold for myself. I amassed silver and gold for myself. He was wealthy. He had money. He's the richest man to ever live on the face of the earth. Let me show you a diagram. Let's put it up on the screens here. These are the big billionaires of our day. Do you see their wealth compared to Solomon's? There is absolutely no comparison at all. This guy was stinking, filthy rich, far beyond your wildest dreams and your wildest imaginations. It said this, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and providences. I acquired men and women singers in a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. thought he was going to miss out. You know what his conclusion was? The only thing he was missing was God. He missed God. He missed God's love. He missed God's direction. He missed God filling the inner parts of his heart and his soul that only God could fulfill. He was so worried about missing out on what this world has to offer. And in the end, he said, I missed out on God. And that was his greatest regret. Look at the conclusion he writes in Ecclesiastes 12.1. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Look down a little bit in verse 13. 
Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. That means have a proper respect and reverence for God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or it's evil. What's he saying here? He's saying, if I could do life all over again, I would have done it God's way. Because all the things that I thought I was going to miss out on, all the things that I thought would bring about peace, all those things I thought would help me in my life, not one of those things satisfied me. Not one of those things led me down the path that I really wanted to walk down. And so he said, hey, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before you get yourself in a bunch of trouble, before you end up with habits, before you end up with a ton of regrets, remember God. Have a proper respect and awe for God because he's the one that matters. Solomon was here today. He'd say, you know what you're missing out on? You're missing, a, you're missing out on a heartache is what you're missing out on. And let, me, let me talk to the teenagers for a second. Let me, let me talk to all, all the single ladies. Let me talk to all the single guys. Rules have changed a lot, haven't they? Used to be you didn't have sex on a first date. That would be three, four, five months later. But now it's kind of expected of you. And that's the way culture is right now. And you look around and you're, and you're lonely and you feel like everybody else is doing it. And, and you know what God's word says. He tells you he wants you to be pure. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be honorable. But it seems like everybody else is doing okay. In fact, it looks like everybody else is having the time of their life, doesn't it? And there has to be moments in your life when you're saying, is it even worth it? Trying to be pure? Trying to do what God wants me to do. Because it sure looks like everybody's having fun. And let's be honest about this. Sin is fun, isn't it? If sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. Sin is fun for a season. And then the season comes to a close. I always say sin's like a good sneeze. Feels good coming out, but then there's snot everywhere once you're done. You know what I mean? That's the way sin is right there. It's not good. The person who's having sex, the person who's sexually active outside of marriage, they're constantly worried that either they're pregnant or they've just impregnated somebody. And every time when the monthly cycle comes around, they're always wondering. They're always wondering. The person who's sexually active, well, many get sexually transmitted diseases. The person who's pure never has to worry about that for a single second, do they? The person who is sexually active and they jump from one bed to another bed to another bed and they end up over the course of many years with so many different partners, you do understand that you're creating appetites inside yourself that will never be satisfied in marriage, that you are setting your marriage, your future marriage up for failure because it's going to be very difficult for you to just be satisfied with one person when you've created your whole life to be a smorgasbord. It will be difficult for you to have a long-lasting, committed relationship to one person because you'll become bored with them. And you'll start looking for somebody else. See, they, they, don't, they don't talk about those things. These people who are saying they're having the time of their life, they, they don't talk about how they feel a distance between them and God. They, they don't talk about how their worship of God has, has been severely affected. Now, they don't go to church as much as they once did. 
Because the Holy Spirit, if they're a Christian, is convicting them of what they've done. And so they kind of stay as far away from God as they possibly can. They stay away from the Word of God as much as they possibly can because the guilt is overwhelming them. I mean, it's just hard, isn't it, to come in this place or to be there at home and sing songs to the Lord and nod your head in agreement to what God's Word has to say and then know you're not living any of it? I mean, there's just a disconnect from who you say you want to be to who you actually are. But nobody talks about that kind of stuff. Nobody mentions, you know, that this is going to mess up your future wedding. I mean, at some point in time, you might have to share the things that you've done with other people. And just as you hope that your wife would have been sexually pure, because I'm sure, guys, you didn't want her doing what you did, or vice versa. Well, you begin to bring in all kinds of baggage into that married relationship. What are you really missing out on? I remember years ago, I was working out at a gym to find fitness, and a, and a friend of mine, he, he worked as construction, and he would come after work, and we would meet at the gym. We'd work out together. We did this for several years. And one day, he absolutely shocked me. He, he said, uh, uh, all the guys that I work with are married, but they have a girlfriend on the side. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, 100%? He said, 100%. I said, uh, 100%? He said, no. He said, but they put pressure on me all the time. They, they can't understand why I'm so committed to my wife and why I would never do something like that to her or to God. And then he looked at me, and I'll never forget it. He said, what they don't understand, Todd, is I can put my head on my pillow at night and look over at my bride knowing that I was faithful to her and I was faithful to God. I can put my head on my pillow at night knowing I don't have to wonder or worry about where I was, who I was with, what I said, what I did. I can put my head on my pillow at night and I can get a sound sleep because I've been faithful to my wife and I've been faithful to God. What, 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 are, you, what, are, you, what are you missing? What are you missing out on? People say, come on, party, let's go party. Oh, my goodness, on TV, they make it look like so much fun, don't they? Let's go get wasted. Let's have, on movies, oh, my, everybody getting wasted in the movie. Oh, it looks like it's so much fun. They're having so much fun. They're doing so many stupid things, and it looks like a blast. They don't show you the DUI. They don't show you the addiction. They don't show you that same person sitting in Alcohol Anonymous group to get support to try to break free of their addiction. They don't show you that this is what they're going to be doing for the rest of their life. They don't show you the family that you plowed into and murdered. They, they, don't, they don't show you that your wife or your husband doesn't know exactly what they're getting when you walk through the door and that your children are insecure and afraid of you. They, they don't show any of that, do they? What are we missing out on? Here's my conclusion. Pain, heartache, guilt, regret. Those are some things I've chosen, chosen not, to, not, to, not to take on. I think my life is better without those things. But what, what do I gain by following Jesus? You gain a rich, deep, intimate relationship with your spouse. You get to do life together with your best friend, with Jesus at the very center of it. You get to raise your kids in a countercultural way. 
where you teach them the ways and, and the teachings of Christ. And, and you start to see them becoming difference makers and being lights in dark places. You, you gain a peace that passes all understanding. That even though all hell's breaking loose around you and the world is spinning out of control, you know that he is ultimately in control and you can rest at night and you can cast all your cares upon him. What do you gain? You gain a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You gain someone who'll never leave you, who will never forsake you. You gain everything with Jesus. So Malachi says, you know, you, you think, is it worth it, right? Is it really worth following the Lord? Is, is giving him our very best worth it? And then Malachi reminds them that there's going to be a day that they're going to stand before God and they're going to give an account. Look at what he says here. He says, surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will stumble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Is it worth following the Lord? Well, I think it'll be crystal clear the day you stand before him. And you give an account for every careless word you've ever spoken. That's what the Bible says. Now, there's two different kinds of judgment. I want you to get this. If you're a Christian, you don't have to be fearful of the judgment day. The judgment day for you isn't a matter of whether you go to heaven or not. Because you've trusted in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you get to go to heaven not because of anything you've done, but because of what he did for you. Because you accepted the grace of God. You accepted the gift of God. That's what gets us into heaven. Not by our works, not by our goodness, but by his goodness. But you'll be rewarded on the judgment day. The Bible talks about the Bema Seat Judgment. That you'll stand before God, there'll be a huge fire. Your life's work will be thrown into the fire. And if what you have done with your life comes out as gold and silver and precious metals, you will be rewarded by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, tell me at that point in time, was it worth it or not? For every kind word, every time you gave a cup of cold water in his name, he's written it down. He's going to reward you on that day. But the Bible also says that there's going to be some people who get in and they won't have any rewards. They will have asked Christ in their life, but they never really took the things of God very seriously. And so when they throw their life's work into the fire, it just burns up like hay and straw and stubble. And they'll stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and realize they wasted their life. And the Bible says this, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. And we always make the joke, there'll be some people in heaven that smell like smoke. I want to be in the no smoking section. So that's, that's the judgment for the Christian. What about for those of you who are saying, you know, it's not worth it. You know, I can do that later on. Following Jesus stuff, doesn't matter. It's not worth it. I don't want to miss out on anything. You die. What's your judgment? Well, you appear before the great white throne judgment of God found in Revelation chapter 20. This is what it says. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. Huh? According to what they had done. 
as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up its dead after they were judged according, look at that, according to their deeds. All those people who thought they could be good enough to get to heaven, they're going to find out that their goodness wasn't good enough. Then death and the grave were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You want nothing to do with God. I don't want to take him seriously. I don't want to live my life for him. I'm going to blow him off. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want to miss out on anything. And then you die. And you never get things right with the Lord. He'll look at you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. You wanted nothing to do with me on this earth. I'll have nothing to do with you for all eternity. You have it your way. Is following Jesus worth it? One day my faith will become sight. One day I'll be rewarded for every kind act and every kind deed that I've ever done by the King of kings and by the Lord of lords. I'm going to walk on streets of gold. I'm going to a place where there is no more sickness or death or suffering or pain. I'm leaving this dumpster fire behind. Is he worth it? Yeah, he's worth it. He gave me his best. He laid down his life for me. And then three days later, he rose again. And he's preparing a place for me in heaven where we'll never have to say goodbye ever again. He's worth every sacrifice. He's worth everything that I've got. Is he worth it to you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are worthy to receive honor and praise forevermore. You're worthy of the best we've got to give you. Our best offering, our best time, our best attention, our best use of our talents. You are worthy of us offering to you the best life that we can live for you. Lord, I just pray for anyone who wasn't certain about that. Anyone who's still living as if they're missing out on something. I think in their heart and their soul, they know that the only thing that they're really missing out on is you. To be close to you. To walk with you. To do life together with you. That's all that matters. So give us a moment of clarity, Lord. To see what's really worth it. Because at the end of the day, when we're in our right minds, you're all there is. And you're all that matters. So I pray, Lord, if we've been living in a way that isn't like that, that we would throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And that we would run the race that you've set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we would run the race in such a way as to win the prize that you've set before us to win. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.